The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. I grew up with a dad that had a basement full of ham radios. He was an electrical engineer. And the the one question, the, the one answer he had to my questions was always, well, why do you think it works that way? <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Ted Newell, who is a business owner twice over, the first being Medical Device Success, where he helps small to medium-sized medtech companies with strategic planning, marketing, and sales expertise, and the second being a company called SRD Vision, where his team manufactures a testing platform that helps researchers and eye care professionals conduct visual and reading tests. Ted holds a bachelor's degree in business as well as a master's degree in international management. Ted, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome, Aaron. It's a pleasure. Can you give us just a 60-second sec- summary of, of both of your current businesses? Sure. So the SRD Vision is um, a company that has its own product. It's a product I licensed out of Austria from a ophthalmic friend of mine, and it is a, a testing device that we make from with components that are off the shelf. So it's really the software that matters, the software and the computer system and a really high resolution screen. And it's not purchased that often, so I sort of custom make and sell several of them a year. Uh, but the other thing we do is we import a product from France. I'm helping a colleague of mine in France get a very nice diagnostic uh, instrumentation launched in the United States. So that's what SRD Vision does. And then on the medical device success side, it is a consultancy. I'm a solo consultant, sort of a general contractor. I work with a lot of uh, small, medium-sized companies, frequently in the early stage of their existence. So Often it's a company that might be a year or two or three even from, you know, commercialization, getting clinical uh, studies done and or regulatory approval. And then sometimes I help them afterwards. So it's a consultancy. And if I need other agency help from somebody that's really specialized in something like digital marketing, I know exactly who to go to. So that's essentially a description of uh, both companies. Oh, plus I have the podcast. I forgot about that. The Medical Device Success Podcast. I think we're coming up on our 58th episode this weekend, and we can talk more about that later. No, congratulations. Well, um, what? how did you get into the medical device success business? What, what was the path that led you there? I was a uh, – I'm the son of an engineer, which is dangerous. <laughs> and then I – you know, I went to pre-med school. I thought I wanted to be a dentist, veterinarian, or a doctor. I wasn't sure which, so I started taking some pre-med classes. Um, wasn't really that excited about it. Changed to business, went to graduate school, and right out of graduate school, I got hired by a division of American Hospital Supply. So there wasn't any necessarily any path that you could say I had that I knew I was going to follow. I never thought in my life I'd be in sales. And that was the first job I had in sales for this division of American Hospital Supply. 
So that's how I got there. And I've been in medical devices ever since because it is, as your audience knows, it's a very exciting business to be in, regardless of what community uh, or medical specialty you're involved in. It certainly is. You know, we talk a lot on this show about the development of medical devices and, and other products, um, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about what happens after development to get those devices into the market. And that's something that you have quite a bit of expertise in. Can you talk about the steps involved in taking a new medical device to market and why the engineers who develop these products might want to be aware of those steps? Sure. And actually, the steps start before you go to market. And the one of the biggest mistakes new technology companies make, especially if it's a startup, is not paying attention to the pre-commercialization issues related to marketing and understanding the market. So let's just go back. Somebody has an idea. It's an engineer that's involved in medical devices, and, and they have an idea, and they think this is the 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 germ of a new company or it's a doctor that comes to an engineer and says can you make this i think this is a great idea it can make become a very successful product so you've got an idea you have a prototype perhaps you have a design but it's just an idea and it's the idea on only a few heads you really need to go out early on and start exploring what we what we call the voice of the customer and start bringing in other people. You know, use a non-disclosure agreement if you must, so the word doesn't get out. But you really need to find out if, in fact, you really do have a good idea. You know, something that has value that people believe will improve their outcomes when they're doing surgery or when they're caring for a patient or something like that. So, voice of the customer early on, and the another aspect of sort of related to voice of the customer is what you'd call health economic research. And that's a, it's like a science and it's a way for people that specialize in this to go research the area around the solution that you think you're providing. And there's already people that have published papers. There's already data out there that indicate that there's probably a problem related to your solution. And you need to study that to really understand and make sure that you are designing something that has the features that are truly going to solve the problems that you think can be solved and or if your customers and in the voice of the customer work say, uh, we think you're missing something and you need an additional feature, you need additional capabilities that you can design those into the product before you get too far and before you've wasted a lot of resources and then find out that the market isn't as thrilled about your idea as you are. So there's some work that has to be done early. And then once you've You've done that work, you've got an idea, a prototype, you've, you know, done some uh, you know, maybe inhuman testing or animal testing, and you've, um, you're, let's say you're ready for the regulatory process, then you need to make sure that your regulatory process is going to pursue the claims that you believe your solution offers, so that when you get to commercialization, after the regulatory process has has gone down its path, when you get to commercialization, you can actually tout those claims. And so the other day I interviewed um, a health economics research um, expert, and one of the things we talked about was we talked about 
the famous chasm, which is in Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, which a lot of people don't understand, but it's very important. And we agreed that there's probably a couple other chasms. And one of them is the chasm between regulatory approval and commercialization, because people don't have those two things aligned. Um, so that's that's some of the stuff I think that has to be done early on. Key, um, all, other things like key opinion leader development, um, you know, getting some advisors lined up, starting to develop um, early adopters early, way before you go commercial. You want to be developing um, your early adopter audience. You can be capturing all this information. It's legal to do. It is a kind of marketing but there's ways to do it that is that is legal, and you can start capturing these people so that when you do get to commercialization, maybe you've got three or four hundred people that are sort of eager to hear about it getting commercialized and ready to help ready to help you. Um, I, if you want me to keep going on this, I can. <laughs> Let, let's go back to the voice of the customer for a second, especially if uh, if I'm a early stage startup or, or even a physician inventor that's working with an engineer, um, doing the voice of the customer work sounds like it could be very time consuming and, and very expensive. Is that necessarily the case or are there bootstrap methods by which one can go about that? Yeah, there's there's bootstrap. I mean, it's just the, the people that are involved in founding the company can, can do it themselves. They might want to get the help of somebody like me. You don't have to get involved with a huge agency that's going to put three or four people on the task, but just to make sure you're asking the right questions, somebody that can help create a template, a guide, and a script that you can follow. And then what you do, so you go out and you talk to five people. Then you regroup and you say, what did we learn? Well, we learned that we're missing this. We're hitting this right on. They really like this, but they think we're missing that. We're missing um, A, B, or C. Okay, revise the script. Now you go talk to another five or 10 people and you keep revising as you keep going to make sure you're covering all the bases and getting the information you need. But it's just phone call after phone call, maybe face-to-face, virtual meetings if you're going to demonstrate the concept, the product concept. Um, I, and I really think that the the people that are developing the product have to be involved in this. They need to be the ones talking to people and getting this direct feedback. So, um, a colleague of mine that is one of the listeners to my podcast, he has a great podcast called Mastering Medical Device, Pat Cothy. They just launched a product. And in their voice to the customer, and I personally, I think this is sort of crazy, but they talked to 600 ER docs. Wow. Yeah. Um, but that's over a period of time, you know, because you're testing it all the time. You're going back over this voice of the customer. So you're you're not an engineer yourself, but um, you have uh, you've worked with engineers. Uh, you're, you're CEO of a company that that um, I imagine there have been some engineers along the way. Uh, in in what capacity have you worked with engineers, and how has working with them been different than working with people in in business, uh, you know, sales, marketing, business type roles? Well, like I said earlier, I'm the son of an engineer. You know, I grew up <laughs> I grew up with a dad that had a basement full of ham radios. He was an electrical engineer. And the the one question the the one answer he had to my questions was always, Well, why do you think it works that way? <laughs> you know, I think engineers are analytical and uh which is great. They're very straightforward, they're problem solvers, uh, and they have a methodology which is really terrific. 
Um, I've worked with engineers and companies, especially in the design process, as we're taking a, a product that's under development through you know the, the different functions. So it starts out in research and development, and then it moves on into um, you know pre-manufacturing and manufacturing, in addition to regulatory affairs and quality assurance and so on. So you have these de- design review meetings. Um, and where the engineers are involved, and of course marketing, and sometimes sales is involved, but frequently it's marketing. So, yeah, I would say that, um, and as engineers, then to the to your listeners, you're like I said before, you're very logical and problem solving type of people, and you might not understand or appreciate all the time the human element, the human element, in a lot of decisions and perhaps you might not want to put up with the politics in the company and some of the other stuff that goes on. And I I can understand that. You just have to learn how to do that and learn how to listen and think about what people in these other roles are trying to accomplish and then communicate what you're trying to accomplish to them so that they can appreciate what you're doing as well. In a sense, it it kind of sounds like you're talking about empathy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, empathy. Um, it's a kind of empathy, but it's also you know being a good listener and don't let don't let yourself get frustrated with some crazy demand a marketing person comes up with or a salesperson comes up with because they have no clue what it takes to design a certain feature into a product. And they think, oh, it can be done overnight or it can be done in a a few weeks. Or they may not understand the regulatory implications of the change that they're requiring or they're asking for. So you just have to be patient and, and, you know, be a teacher sometimes. Well, that's an interesting point because oftentimes the, the products, the devices that we as engineers develop, they are, um, uh, handed down to us from marketing. So, uh, if we find ourselves as an engineer in a situation where marketing comes to us and says, we're going to develop this product and here are the requirements and here's the deadline and, and all this stuff. And we take a look at it and we, we just think there's no way that this is going to happen either on that schedule or within these requirements. Uh, how do you suggest engineers, um, communicate with their, their marketing counterparts to, um, uh, help them understand the, the engineering reality of the project? I think, again, it goes back to having to be a teacher. You you create a development plan. You say, okay, this is a very interesting idea. Let me put myself or one or two of my teammates on it, and we'll come up with a development plan, and we'll be back to you in a, in a few days or a week or whatever it takes to explain the plan, how long we think it's going to take, and what the resources are required to get it done. And that, that's what I think if you if you handle it that way, then you have and, and you deliver that plan and you and you ex- explain it to the marketing people or the other man, operations people, then they have some facts in front of them that they never considered before. And it's a, a very pleasant and diplomatic wake up call. I, I think that's a very smart answer. Um I have noticed a little bit different situation, but when, when I give a quote to one of my customers and, and they push back and they say, that's way too much. There's no way it can be, you know, there's no way it can cost this much. I, I, something's wrong here. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes they're right. You know, maybe I've, I've missed something, a requirement or something like that, misunderstood. But 
Oftentimes, what I'll do is I'll give them the worksheet that I used to come up with that quote, and it has every single activity that I think we need to do itemized with a number of hours next to it. And I'll send them that, and most of the time, they look at it and they say, oh, you're right. Okay, I, I get it. I get it. You know, And that's the power of having a plan, some kind of written document that you can share with someone. Um, it's. I think it would be easy for a marketer to hear an engineer say, this can't be done, and for the marketer to just say, well, sure it can, just try harder, you know, or something like that. <laughs> but when there's a plan that's written down with some level of detail, then, then it becomes much easier to, I don't know, share one's point with, um, if you're an engineer speaking with a marketer. So, Absolutely. excellent answer answer there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take just a real short break here and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. We're speaking with Ted Newell uh, today, but president at both Medical Device Success and uh, SRD Vision. Um, Ted, I, Ted I, I find that most engineers don't think about sales very much, but but to some degree, we all need to be salespeople to to promote our ideas, whether it be within our own organizations or to external customers. What tips can you share with engineers who are listening for for selling their ideas within their teams and organizations? Okay, so I would divide that into possibly working with external stakeholders, perhaps a, a customer, and then internal stakeholders, which would be your teammates. And when it's internal stakeholders, if you're trying to sell an idea to them, you need to approach it from the standpoint of what their pain point is. So as an engineer, you have come up with a solution or you have an idea that is a solution to some kind of problem. That's why you think it's interesting. And it makes a lot of sense to you. And you're ready to go tell somebody that you have a great idea. But another approach might be to say, you know, when the reps are in the field and they're working with the doctors with our product X and they're in this part of the surgery, has anybody mentioned having a an issue with, uh, you know, Z and A? And the the marketing person or the sales manager might say, well, yeah, it comes up sometimes, but the doctors are really good at working around it. We have a workaround for that. And then that's an opportunity because now what you've said is you've you've identified a pain point and the person's actually agreeing that there's a pain point. Another way to do that would be to say, you know, I had one of our customers call me or I was in the field the other day and I was watching this procedure or I was watching this bedside uh, um, application of, of, a, of a therapy or a treatment and I noticed this. I noticed that they struggled with this or struggled with that. Is that something that we'd like to solve? You know, so what you're doing is you're trying to, you're asking a question and you're trying to ask a question to identify and get agreement on a pain point. And when you have that, then people's defenses go down because they're agreeing with you and they say, yeah, that's really interesting. You think we can do something about that? Yeah. In fact, I sketched out something the other day and I'd like to show it to you. That's a great answer. 
Yeah, when you ask it as a question, you you frame the whole conversation almost in the other person's terms, right? And 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 then they can almost think of the answer as is partly their idea, which becomes much easier for them to buy into. Exactly. Yeah. So I think looking and then understand personas, um, the kind of persona that you're dealing with. Try to you know realize that you have people in different quadrants, right? A, B, C, and D. You know, is this an A personality? that you have to sort of you know, butter up a little bit to get them to listen to your idea. Um, and sometimes, again, it, the best way to do that is to question them because an A personality doesn't want to hear that you've got a great idea. They'd love to hear that they have a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, think about what kind of personality you're dealing with, what their obje- uh, objectives and what their goals are so that you're both on the on the same page and ask questions, ask questions to get to where you want to go and try to keep the questions open-ended. So it makes them talk about it. I love it. That's great. Um, you talk about something called the technology adoption life cycle curve. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and how it's used? Sure. The tech technology adoption life cycle curve is something that has been made somewhat famous by Jeffrey Moore, who's the author of Crossing the Chasm, which is a terrific book, and it's been uh, uh, published, I guess, now three times. And I'm rereading the most recent one. I read one of the early ones, but I'm rereading it. And I think, actually, this last version is very, very good. It's better than his other two versions. But the technology lifecycle curve is a curve where, as, as a technology moves into the marketplace, its first utilized by innovators. Then the next group that's interested are called early adopters. And they that total amount, that total between those two parties, on average, you're at 13 or 13.5% of the total market. Then the next group where you get growth, where the curve, uh, the, the adoption curve ratchets up, is called the early adopters. Some people call them the pragmatists as well, but early adopters excuse me, early majority. The early, first it's innovators, then early adopters, then where the curve ramps up is early majority, and they're also called pragmatists. And then as the, the curve goes over the top of this bell curve and you start coming down, then you have the laggards, the people that are um, sort of at the end of adopting a new technology. And the reason this curve is really important is because the, the nature of each group is different. They're all sort of important to each other, but there and there's a gap between each group because the way you communicate your value proposition to each group is a little bit different. But the biggest gap is between the early adopters and the early majority, where you really need to succeed for your company and, and your idea and all your dreams to take off. That's the biggest gap. It's called the chasm, and that's where a lot of companies uh, fail and die, even with great ideas. Okay, I have uh, two questions here, Ted. The first one is, does the technology curve apply equally across all industries like medical devices, consumer products, uh, industrial equipment? And then, well, actually, why, why don't we just address that one first and then and then we'll move on. Okay, so the curve primarily is related to new concept technologies. So something that really hasn't existed before. So the curve doesn't necessarily apply to, let's say, an improvement on a product that is already well accepted and all you're adding is like the iPhone. 
you know, you're adding another camera to it or a different size or a different quality of glass to the front of it. And so now it's the iPhone 13. Um, the iPhone 13 doesn't really go through the same type of curve as an absolute new concept, which would have been the iPhone when it first came out. So, um, so that's one thing, but it does apply across industries. There's a little bit of controversy about it. Some people um, aren't so sure about that. I do believe it does. I've experienced it myself, seen it in action, and um, both in medical devices and other industries. And the other part of that I would say is that there's also these gaps in other places that medical devices can get tripped up in that other industries don't. And so part of that's the regulatory to commercial and then also the payment situation. How are you going to get paid Mm. um, reimbursement for medical devices? That's another place where there's a gap in understanding and people can get tripped up. Okay. So speaking of gap, my second question is how does one maximize their chances of, of bridging that chasm that you had talked about? First of all, know that it's there and, and agree to the fact that it could be a danger to your efforts. And one way to avoid getting hurt is to conserve your resources. So, for example, I'm working with a company right now where the CEO was debating in his mind whether he should add a bunch of more sales reps coming into the fall. And this wasn't part of my my assignment, but from what he had told me, if he would have asked me, I'd have told him no but he had me working on something else. And I would have said, no, conserve your resources. Make sure you solve the early adoption problem first. And then you can add more people as you get into the early majority. But their problem is that they had not served early adoption problem and that market first. So one thing is to conserve resources and the, you know know that the the gap is there and make sure you understand how to work with and how to identify early adopters so at least you can get that beachhead because it's out of the early adopters you're going to find a certain group of key opinion leaders that are going to help you bridge the gap to the early majority so you really need to nail the early adopter stage of the product life cycle, of the technology adoption life cycle how how do you even know that you're in that uh, that chasm? You f- your sales are flat. Okay. So you're right. you have you have a short curve of growth, and you're feeling like ah, oh, people are using the product, and we're getting some traction, and it's real exciting. You've had your first sales, and the sales are starting to grow, and you've got this little curve of growth going, and then things go flat. Um, and you're meanwhile you're burning money. Because maybe you hired too many salespeople you or you invested too much in something else that doesn't help you with early adopters or getting across the gap to early majority. A good example would be a company that just comes full on out with a really new technology product and hires a huge sales force and starts a gigantic marketing campaign that is touching everybody in the market. Well, everybody in the market <laughs> isn't going to buy the product. It's just their nature. That's that's the nature where they fit in the curve. We're all different. And that can be a huge waste of money, and that can result in failure. Okay, so you're saying we need to um, identify the key opinion leaders that are serving those early adopters or influencing those early adopter majorities and, and target marketing efforts towards them? Right, right. And there's some ways to do that, depending on what kind of 
product that you have and and there's some ways to dig these people out but you know look for the early adopters try to identify them and you could be identifying them way before you even go commercial by having a good website up by having good content of what you've been developing the clinical studies maybe some of the articles the that are in the media and you can you know they come into your website they self-identify because they want to download this content so there's a there's a number of things you can do to start identifying these people because early adopters innovators and early adopters are typically looking for something they uh, innovators are looking for something just because they're crazy and they're curious early adopters are looking for an advantage they want to be the first and if the if this technology that they adopt gives them an advantage sort of first to market in their community as the leading person, the person that's always got the latest and greatest stuff, then they're interested in it. Um, other doctors don't care about that. They're happy to be very conservative and, you know, take their paycheck and go home. And there's nothing you can do to uh, to push them. You know, a good example is you have a, you hire a sales rep because he has access to the marketplace. He knows all these let's say, general surgeons um, or urologists. Oh, I know everybody. I know all the urologists. Well, sure, they will open the door, and he he will think or she will think that they're being successful because people are opening the door and letting them in and letting them talk about their product or this new technology. People will think, the the rep will think that, and the, and then they'll communicate that to the company. Oh, yeah, these people are interested. It looks really good. But all they're saying is, Joe Rep, it's nice to see you. It's nice to hear about what you're involved in. <laughs> Haven't seen you in a while. But in the back of their head, they're saying, nope, I'm not going to use that until I see some more clinical studies. Or mm. or when Dr. Smith down the hall, who sort of leads all the the new ideas in the region or the, the city, starts using it, then I'll take a chance and I'll use it. So it can be very deceptive. People think that they're getting listened to and and they're ma- and they're making progress, but they're talking to the wrong people. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, you you've worked with venture funded startups, and chances are there are engineers listening to this who are either now contemplating working for a venture funded startup, or will have an opportunity to do so sometime in the future. Uh, what are some some key differences between working in a venture environment, venture funded environment, versus working in a more established company that these engineers maybe should consider before making their decision? More pressure, hmm. because you have a a set amount of money that the company has raised for a certain part of its life. Let's say it's an A round, and the A round is to get the product to um, proof of concept and first human use, let's say. Sometimes the B and C rounds are to get to a certain stage of commercialization. But they need to get things done in that A round with a set amount of money. Or the B round comes up. Let's say you've survived into the B round or the C round. There are milestones, and the investors expect the company to meet those milestones because that's what they invested in, a a group of people that said that we think we can meet these milestones and end up with uh, a you know, eventually a commercial product. And so there's this pressure and, and sometimes uh, you might not have all the resources you want and you have to, you don't have an admin that you can go to. You don't have some of the resources a large company may have. So you have to be a little bit ingenious and, and resourceful, but that's the world of, 
you know, working in a startup with venture capital or angel capital uh, initially, it can be really rewarding because you're at the center, you're at the heart of everything, which is could be real exciting. You're not, you know, in a large corporation working on one component of, of a product that requires 25 components that your one component's going to go into. Um, so I would say it's the the pressure, the fact that you need to get to milestones because hitting milestones equals more company for the startup. So you really have to have that kind of personality. If you're the type of person who, who likes working under some pressure, that could be a good fit for you. If if you're not that type of person, you might want to look for something uh, more uh, yeah, established. You, you would definitely need to you know prepare to have something of a thick skin. It's very exciting initially until you're getting low on money. <laughs> I've seen companies, I've been there at a company like that, and uh, I've, so I've, I've experienced this a few times, and you have that pressure going on. It can be very exciting. I think another thing would be where you are in life. So let's say you've been very financially responsible all your life. You're, you know, your kids are in college. You've got plenty of money set aside. You're not personally making an investment in this startup company. You're just going to work there, but you're pretty financially secure. Then it's easier. It's a little easier to take that chance. Yeah. And hopefully there's some upside reward, right? You have some kind of stock options in the oh, company yeah. or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there, if it, if all went well and you had an exit, you who knows? You could right. make a lot of money in that exit. Yeah. But a lot of people don't. Yeah. I, yeah. I bet more often than not. Correct. All right. Well, I've got a, a, just a few more questions here for you. And these are, are not necessarily related to even what you do specifically, but you have just a lot of general experience in, in many different areas. And I shouldn't say just general experience, specific experience in many different areas. And, and I'm very curious to hear how you would answer these questions. These can be taken probably in, um, well, at least the first one can be taken in, in many different ways. So I'll um, invite you to take this in whatever direction you think might be most helpful or useful for listeners. Uh, the first question is, what is the greatest thing that you have ever learned in life? I would say it's to listen. Wow, that was a, that was fast. That was a quick answer. You knew that one. <laughs> right. Well, use your ears more than your mouth. Use, you know, your ears and the brain that's between them and listen to people. It's a great way to get to know people. It's a great way to understand what their issues are and their concerns. And if you truly do learn how to listen to people, they can tell you're listening. And it's a great way to develop rapport in a relationship and, and move on to be you know, productive together with that other individual or with a group of people. Great answer. Thank you for that. What are you learning right now? Well, like I said before, I'm rereading Crossing the Chasm, um, and and I'm enjoying that. So that's probably something I've really been digging into. And and I'm learning by, you know, working for clients in terms of helping them identify early adopters and dig these people out of the woodwork. It's not really that hard. And in some ways it is. I mean, I shouldn't say dig them out of the woodwork because they're sitting on top of the woodwork. They want to be, you know, they're crowing from the rooftops that they're an early adopter. But so reading Crossing the Chasm and just thinking about what it means to, uh, for my clients, what it means to the med tech industry overall, I, I think that's one of the things. And the other thing I learned is, you know, in my podcasts, um, 
I'm listening to and working with subject matter experts frequently, or I'm doing an in the C-suite interview. So I'm interviewing somebody from the C-suite. Often they're startups and just learning from them. So the subject matter experts, I'm learning new stuff all the time. Like today I I was preparing for a podcast and I talked to a guy in Israel has a great idea to help people more, more, more successfully communicate uh, visual features of a product like via a Zoom call. It was just terrific. So I'm learning that way too. I just really enjoy, just like you, you're, you're meeting people all the time every, every week or however often you're doing your podcast, you're meeting people, you're learning from them. You're passing on that learning to, your listeners, and I'm doing the same thing. Yeah, it's so rewarding, I find. Um, okay, last question, and then we'll we'll wrap things up here. How has failure shaped your life? It's kept me humble. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, one of my mantras is um, uh, BHBS exclamation point, which means be humble, be strong. And it's uh, just a way of realizing that the world doesn't revolve around you that there's you know there's a lot of other people involved in things and um, you know a failure for me is probably also going to be a failure for some other parties from stakeholders or it could be family or whatever it might be so I think being humble and I think by being humble it goes back to helps you be a better listener and it, it helps you see the world better fantastic well, Ted, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I really appreciate you, uh, your, your time and sharing your, your wisdom and your insights with us. Uh, so thank you so much again for being here. It was a pleasure, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.